Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Robin. And this is Home is Where the Murder Is. How's it going, Mal? Well, you know, we're finding out that we're not exactly technology wizards in this day and age with all this podcasting stuff these kids are doing. Um, We just spent a a good chunk of time trying to figure out how to get the sound to actually be working because from the last time we recorded to now, apparently the computer decided to switch things around on us or I don't I don't know I don't know yeah it's been a rough night (laughs) I mean it's already almost Tuesday it is almost Tuesday already um but you know so basically we're gonna be recording this podcast in two days because yeah yeah gonna start on Monday and finish on Tuesday yep because I promise I'm not gonna get this done in 13 minutes is it a long one? It is eight full pages oh of my research. Goodness. So I am doing the Los Feliz murder house or murder mansion. People refer to it as either or. Oh my gosh, what was that noise? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Something coming out of me. <laughs> Spirits. Um. <laughs> that was great. what I was saying um people refer to it as a house or a mansion it's very much a mansion but they say murder house a lot too and everything I was reading um so I don't know if you I I know I've kind of slightly talked about this a little bit with you um but it's a pretty interesting case um and I'm gonna be not only talking about the actual murder suicide that happened that everyone knows about, but I'm, I found a wonderful podcast um, called The Los Feliz Murder Mansion by Stacey Astenas. Astenas? Oh, gosh. I just listened to how to say it, too. But, you I don't, know. I don't even remember, and I heard it, too. Anyway, Stacey did a wonderful job. She was starting to do her podcast. She was going to do a documentary, and then it turned into a podcast. But it's seven parts with one update. Um so if you find this interesting at all, I'm just kind of scratching the surface. Her podcast is amazing. So definitely go listen to that. And then there were a lot of other various websites I pulled information from too. Um, and I can get a list of those. As we should, because you should always cite your sources. So Word. Word to the sources. Um, so like I said, normally when you hear about this house, you're just listening to the tale of the murder-suicide, but... There is so much more history that I found about this house. And since um, we are realtors, actually. Oh, oh, are we? Did you know that? Um, So I just thought that diving a little bit more into the history of this house would be really fun to do. Because a lot of the times, like I said, when you hear about this, you just hear about that murder-suicide because that's the real juicy part of it, right? Yeah. Literally. You know. Juice. literally juicy Ew. yeah gross gross yeah um but this house has a very interesting story to be told so let's dive in okay okay so located in los angeles california this is a story about the los Feliz murder house or murder mansion located at 2475 glendower place in los Feliz. um 
the L.A. area. The L.A. They area. They call it the Los Feliz area. Um, this house, really imagine, is huge. It's over 5,000 square feet, and it is gorgeous. It was built in 1925 for Harry F. Shoemaker, Shoemaker and built in the Spanish Revival style with white stucco, a huge entry with tile that had 51 stairs to climb to enter the front door, which that's a lot of stairs. Um, four master bedrooms, three regular bedrooms, a library, a three-car garage, um, beautiful lawns and gardens, staff quarters, a ballroom with a bar in it up on the third level, um, like the attic area, a conservatory, a special breakfast room, terracotta accents, and small balconies all around, just to name some of these features. Um, okay. So Ooh, there's... Wait the, a second. Why do you need four master bedrooms? Listen... So, so many um, you guests like, and... You don't... Do you think maybe they like one night they're like, we'll sleep in the pink room. Yeah. And then the next night they're like, they oh, be... in the floral room. I like the flamingo room. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, but some as I was listening about this too, something that was really interesting, like you would think like this house would have a huge, awesome kitchen, right? It doesn't. It's a very small kitchen because remember they had staff. So oh. they didn't cook for themselves. The staff What's my cook. excuse? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that basically, if you have a small kitchen, that's just because that's for your staff, not for you. Right. Um, so in the middle of this house, though, is also a two-story tall window that's turned a sort of yellowish kind of color over the years. Um, and there's also stairs you can see right through that window that leads up to that third um, floor ballroom with that bar. So, which is kind of interesting because this was all kind of during Prohibition area as I was looking at you I'm to sorry. see what you're doing. I need to, I just have to say this because I'm wondering if you can hear it. I'm, I have a case of the yawns and I'm <laughs> like yawning, like there. I'm honestly yawning like every 60 seconds and yeah. I'm really sorry and I keep trying to get away from my mic. So I'm, I'm sorry. Well, we must move on. <laughs> So, because I have eight pages. Oh, God. <clears throat> so, um, so there's also stairs that you can see through the window, like I said, which is kind of weird because this was during Prohibition times, too, that this house was kind of built. So you'd want to hide if you had a bar and you were drinking. So, but this, you can literally see people going up to the ballroom. But it's kind of, kind of spooky, too. Um, so it's obviously from all of this, it's very beautiful, impressive. It's on in the highest part of that area too so it sits up up upon the hill and you have an amazing view of LA so um right behind this house too there was a house built by um Frank Lloyd Wright which is really cool um and actually there were shots used of the exterior of that house of Frank Lloyd Wright's house in the 1950s horror movie The House on Haunted Hill so very interesting about that. So uh, just a little side note. Remember that Harry, who this house was built for, passed away on December 6th, 1932. So just remember that date. Okay. Um, another interesting thing I found that this neighborhood, Los Feliz neighborhood, neighborhood, actually has a curse on it. So back when Southern California was divided and parceled up into rancheros, which are land concessions from the government of Spain, um, the Los Feliz Ranchero was given as a gift to Jose Feliz 
as his service to the government. Then it was handed down to Don Fleas after his death. It was his niece who was meant to inherit the land. But she was cut out of the will by two other men, um, and she didn't like that. So she put a curse on the land. Um, after she did this, the crops died, livestock would die, and people who were connected to the land in some sort of way would have many misfortunes. So, for example, Thomas Bell fell to his death in his own home. Um, Griffith, J. Griffith, yep, that's a name, who um, couldn't make a profit off the land, so he gifted it to the city of L.A., and then he shot his wife in the face in a drunken rage and spent years in San Quentin prison. So there's Oof. also that. Um, and then the actress Peg um, at at Whistle at at Whistle. <laughs> um, so Peg, she died in 1932 by um, jumping off the H of the Hollywood sign. Yeah, that's familiar, right? Oh. So that that's the area that we're in right now. Okay. So this house isn't like right there by the Hollywood sign, but that whole area is like the um, Los Feliz area, basically. So yeah, wouldn't want to be there. Um, there was also a wildfire back back in the day um, that killed twenty three firefighters. So this area has seen a lot of misfortune and problems, basically. And you know, she cursed the land. Is it because of the curse? I don't know. Right? Yes. It is. It's fact, actually. Um, so, I, I have a whole thing about who lived in the house before Dr. Um, Harold Pearlson and his wife, Lillian, and their children moved in. But I'm going to kind of dive into that a little bit later. I'm, it feels like I'm jumping around a little bit, but it kind of works with how I'm telling all of this. So, just keep that in mind. So, now we're getting into the part that everyone... If you know about this, this is what this is, why it's called the murder house, basically. So, so I guess, spoiler alert, there's some murder coming. Who um, yeah, weird, right? So, Dr. Harold um, Perelson and his wife Lillian and three children, Judy, who was 18 at the time, Joel, 13, and Debbie, 11, um, were the next to purchase the home, and they purchased it sometime in the 1950s. It was really hard to find an exact date. Um, there isn't an exact date, which is kind of weird. But um, Harold was born on February 26, 1909 in New York City to Henry and Molly. What a great oh, name. Oh, look at that. Aw, he grew up in Manhattan, and at the age of 28, he was living in L.A. and married Lillian Silver, age 20. Lillian was born December 29, 1916, so she's seven years younger than Harold in New York City. Um, we don't know exactly where they met but they did meet in LA at some point they had a daughter Judy in 1941 then Joel in 1946 and Debbie in 1948 Harold graduated from the City College of New York in 1931 with a bachelor in science and in 1935 he received his MD from Long Island College in 1955 he spoke to the Cali Medical Association about headaches and how they can be caused by food allergies and emotional strain let me tell you, I agree with that emotional strain part. I get headaches and emotions. So Harold was on to something, but not everything. So <laughs> Harold also had a private practice in Inglewood, 25 miles south of his home in Los Feliz. 
He was a very well-respected cardiologist and a known man in the medical world. He created a new type of injection syringe that sucked the medicine out of the bottle without exposing it to the air. So this was pretty new. This was pretty, you know, a big thing. He was also the author of one of the most famous clinical reports of all time and a keynote speaker and traveled all around the world speaking to other medical professionals. So, I mean... He sounds like he has his shit together, right? Like he's a doctor. He's doing all these good things. Like he has a lot of, you know, all these medical, you know, people know him. He goes around speaking like, you know, big deal, right? Um, He was also associated with a clinic in Inglewood, like I said. And he was a professor of cardiology at USC School of Medicine. So... Um, yeah, so he was also a self-made man. So he, you know, did, he went to school and he got all of this just from working hard. So. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Um, so on December 6th of 1959, I don't know if you remember that date. Like I told that's you to remember when, that date. That's when, what's Harry his name passed died? away mm-hmm. on December 6th. Yep. So a little strange, right? Um, So December 6th, 1959, all seemed normal as Harold came home and made himself a drink. His wife was wrapping Christmas gifts and making dinner, everything, you know, normal, fine, whatever. After the dinner, the family watched a little TV. Then the youngest two kids went to bed. Then Judy did some homework um, and then went to bed. And then Harold and Lillian, um, or Lillian went to bed a little bit afterwards. Harold remained downstairs until he knew his wife was asleep. Then he went upstairs to read his copy of Dante's Divine Comedy until he himself fell asleep right after um, marking a a certain passage, which I'll read in a little bit. Around 4.30 a.m., Harold woke up, went and got a hammer, stood over his wife, and began brutally attacking her as she was still sleeping. So he just woke up. Went downstairs into the tool chest, grabbed a hammer, went back upstairs, stood over his wife, and started hitting her. No. So, yeah. This is why I don't want to get married for this exact reason. Probably shouldn't be staying overnight at your house either while I'm at it. Well, probably not going to do that. Probably. Probably not. (laughs) Um, So, you know, she started screaming, obviously, which woke um, Judy up. So the oldest daughter, when she saw that her dad had a hammer and was swinging it around, she started screaming too, and that woke up the neighbors next door. She tried her best to block the blows to her head by holding up her arms, which you could see she had a lot of injury on her arms. Um, and But, you know, she was hit. She fell to the ground. Harold thought that she was dead, but she wasn't. She was just kind of faking it in a way. Um, when he left... When he was interrupted by Debbie. So one of the the other daughter woke up. He told her to go back to bed. This is just a bad dream. So as Harold was putting Debbie back to bed. Judy was able to get enough strength together. To get herself out of the house. And run over to the neighbors. They were already awake. Because they heard all of the screaming. Um, The neighbors saw the blood. Immediately notified the police. Who called for an ambulance. And sent patrol cars to the scene meanwhile debbie who had not believed that her father and that told her that she was dreaming she's like yeah this doesn't really seem like a dream you know i'm awake walking around and you have a bloody hammer and they're screaming 
Um, she got her and her brother out of there. So Smart. they fled from the house. Um, so it's not really known if, you know, it, it's interesting that he took them back to bed and yeah. didn't do anything to Debbie or her brother, Joel. Um, but yet he attacked Judy. So interesting. it's interesting. So Harold, um, then realized that the police were coming. So he went and got a bottle of pills from the medicine cabinet, sat down on the bed, took all of the pills in a single gulp. Um, there's a lot of reports around the internet too that I was reading that claim that he drank a, a, a glass of acid, but there's no real truth in that that I could find. Um, all of the newspaper accounts from that day stated that he overdosed on pills. So interesting. Yeah. So he went back um, to he went back in the bedroom. He was found on the ground with an empty bottle of pills next to his wife, Lillian, who was dead in the bed. Um, yeah, that's a lot. She, Lillian, was in the bed. Her head was fractured so badly that she was unrecognizable, as you can imagine. And there was blood splattered all over the wall behind her, and the bed linens were soaked with blood. Gross. When they did the autopsy on Lillian, her eyes were completely bloodshot. Okay. Which means that she didn't die from the blows of the hammer, but by asphyxiation. Oh, no. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, no. Basically, she drowned in her own blood. Okay, that's... She couldn't breathe. She drowned in her own blood. It's late. I'm not going to even try to say some words. <laughs> so remember when I said he marked a passage from that divine comedy? Um, it was Canto 1. So it reads, In dark woods, the right road lost. Halfway through his life, the poet Dante finds himself wandering alone in the dark forest, having lost his way on the true path. So he, it says he says that he does not remember how he lost his way, but he wandered into a fearful place, a dark and tangled valley. So kind of a spooky thing. Mm -hmm. So lost his place, he wandered into a dark place, basically. So Interesting. Yeah. So they did end up taking Judy to the hospital. She had a fractured skull and bruising, but she was okay. She lived, thankfully. Um, people that knew this family were shocked. They had no idea why he would have done this. You know, they seemed like a happy and normal family from the outside, right? As most do. Um, so then you have to start to think, why did he do this? Um, yeah. Yeah. So one thing back then, the outward appearance of money was very important. So there's a lot going on with money with this family. In Judy's car, they found a letter that she had written to her aunt that said, We are on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents are in a bind financially. She also talked about getting a job to help her family out. But why were they in a bind financially? He was a doctor and an inventor. So come to find out, he had been taken advantage of in the invention process. Um, he had partnered with a man named Edward in 1949 who promised him to, to make his invention into a big medical hit. They decided to split the profits, and they also and he also invested $25,000 of their own money into this, which is a lot of money at that time. Edward spent 11 years getting it ready to go to the market, but never gave Harold any money. Oh. So Harold sued him, but he only received $23,956, which wouldn't even cost most 
cover most of the legal fees. So Jeez. it, you know, he lost a lot of money on that. It's not even known if his syringe ever even came to market. Wow, that's unfortunate. Um, another issue of money came when the family was also in a car accident in 1957. Judy was driving the family vehicle with the other two children in the car, and they were hit by another driver running a red light. Harold sought $20,000 in damages for each daughter and $10,000 for his son. This was never given to him, and the only money that he got was for the medical bills. So... He needs a new attorney. Yeah. Also, when looking at Harold's um, probate case, there was a lot of money owed. So they were sending their son to Hollywood's elite medical, um, um, not medical academy. Um, it's like a military academy. I wrote medical academy, but I know what I read. Um, there were a lot of back taxes that were owed and doctors were owed, labs were owed and other business expenses. He owed a good number of bounce checks as well. The largest amount claimed was from a fellow doctor, Max E. Barr, who claimed that Harold owed him $53,000, which adjusted for inflation is $474,000. Yeah. In the newspaper articles covering the crime, the Englewood Medical Clinic, which was costing Harold so much money, and that's where this number came from. Eleven months before the killings, Harold and Lillian signed papers that turned over Max E. Barr's clinic, which was Inglewood, to them. Um, Harold and Lillian were also to buy everything in the clinic, and this cost them an extra $41,000, and they put $10,000 down right away. They also entered into a lease agreement for inside the building for $750 a month. <clears throat> the most important thing to take away was how much they still owed. They agreed to pay Barr $200 a month with 4% annual interest to pay off the medical clinic and then $750 a month for leasing the actual space. Then starting January 1st of 1960, remember, he killed his wife in 1959, December 6th. So right mm. before the cost was all going to go up, it was going to be up to $1,000 a month plus interest. On top of that, January 1st, um, there was a principal sum of $3,400 due. This is all combined, a lot of debt, a lot of money owed. Yikes. Yeah. So what did they do? They had bank accounts all over, so they just started pulling money. They were starting to sell off personal property, like their three cars and medical equipment in Inglewood. Um, Their house was appraised at $45,000, so their entire state was valued at just over $75,000. But their entire amount owed was around $79,000. So um, nicely, though, Barr did settle for only $28,300, which was less than what he was owed for Inglewood. Um, So people ask, you know, why would he do that? It was a lot less. He Maybe to help the children out as an act of compassion at the end here um, so that the children did actually get some money after their parents passed. So there was a leftover amount of around $20,000, which was divided among the children. Oh, well, that was nice. So that's nice. One nice thing, I guess. You know, you guys get those in there every now and then. So there's another reason that Harold might have done this. He was suffering from mental health issues, which, you know, obviously... Yeah, I, yeah. I, she looked at me. I don't know what she's implying. Well, like, yeah, I think that if you're going to go grab a hammer and, you know, kill yeah. your wife and try to kill your daughter, you probably have some mental health issues, Something right? right? Something not right there. Yeah. So, Hammers are for construction yeah, projects. Right, exactly. 
So also in this probate, um, there was Temple Hospital had a bill for $390 for Harold's stay of eight days in August of 1958. And what was he hospitalized for? We're not exactly sure, but we do have the bill that details that there was a tank of oxygen, emergency blood tests, IV, catheter, and other medications. Hmm. The medications that were used were to treat people with low blood pressure. Um, So you could assume that maybe he had tried to commit suicide with all of these things. But we don't know for sure. So um, Thorazine was also prescribed, which was the first antipsychotic drug on the market. So he was dealing with some sort of mental health issues. We could know that for sure, especially with seeing that that drug was on his bill. A neighbor said that they were also told that he was gone for a heart condition, but that could have all been a lie considering that he was on an antipsychotic drug. Um, So they understood that the day after the murder, Lillian had agreed to put him in a medical health facility. So he was going to be going into somewhere to get more treatment too. So maybe he knew that he was going to be going away to this hospital too and all this financial stress and he just snapped. But why were Judy and Lillian only intact and not the other two children like we were wondering? Um, The neighbor that they talked to also said that Harold blamed his wife and his daughter for some of his financial ruin. Uh, Lillian loved to shop and buy furniture and just deck out the new house. Oh, dear. And Judy loved to go shopping and buy clothes. She would go shopping and buy clothes even if they weren't even her size. So, oh. so all of this, the new hospital, spending way more than they could ever recover from, mental health issues. Yeah. You know, it. we'll never know exactly why he did this, obviously. But when you look at all these things, it adds up to maybe just basically snapping. So what, but another thing that was brought up when I was listening to the podcast and reading through articles, he's a doctor, right? So why didn't he just kill himself? Basically, he had access to all these different medications. You know, he had people think that maybe he had some displaced anger at his wife and daughter because they were putting him deeper into the hole. And he killed his wife with a hammer. That is rage. It was up close and personal. So it's like he was trying to get something out. Um, and the neighbor also said, and remember this neighbor that they, I keep saying it was a neighbor that um, was interviewed. You know, this is one person's account, right? But they also said that Harold had a prescription drug problem too. And she remembers seeing that his eyes were dilated a lot. Um, So Harold had some problems. He had some issues, I guess. So this all adds up to maybe why he could have snapped. Again, don't know for sure. But, you know, when you add it all up, you know, one plus one equals two, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's math. So eventually the mansion went to auction and the money would go to pay off any debt and the rest would go to the children, like I said. So um, the children ended up getting $20,000, which they split up, and the house was sold with all the household furniture, furnishings, and personal effects included for an extra fee of $725. On October 20th, 1960, 10 months after the gruesome murder-suicide, the mansion was sold to a couple, Emily or Amelia, and um, Julian... Enriquez. 
who they say only used this over 5,000 square foot house as a storage site. So neighbors recall seeing the couple bringing in boxes into the mansion, but never staying overnight. In 1994, Rudy, their son, inherited the house, and like his parents, the neighbor said that he never stayed there or made any changes. There's a little, I will go a little bit more into that later because Stacy ever actually tracked down Rudy and got Wait to a talk second. to him. Is this the house that if you, that it was, it left vacant, the Christmas tree was still yep. up? Yep. Okay, sorry. Yep. I didn't know if we were going to cover that. No. But. Well, no, I was going to talk about some things, but yeah. All so that I'm Christmas like, tree, yeah. there was never, that's, I, that was a kind of an urban like legend that you could see the Christmas tree still through. But if there was a lot of urban explorers that go around that would break into the house, um, take things too. Mm-hmm. But there were people reported saying that they never saw a Christmas tree, but they did see like gift wrap. So, but yeah, this is the house that is that legend that, you know, the Christmas tree is still standing yeah, okay. from when they were murdered. It only yep. took me 28 minutes to put you that together. You got it though. There it is. <laughs> um, yeah, so local neighbors and brave visitors of the mansion have shared their tales through the windows. One can see a 1950s-style television television set, a Christmas tree. Yep, there's my Christmas there tree. Is, and supposedly neatly wrapped gifts. Um, the furniture is covered in a thick layer of dust. The living room remains exactly the same as that one December night. Again, this is what they all say. It's not quite, it wasn't really quite that way, according to Rudy. Um so, yes. So, let's see. Where do I want to go? Straight to hell if you don't change your ways. Yeah. <laughs> That's what my dad says. <laughs> yeah. So, um, a little bit more about Rudy. So, he got the house in 1994. The neighbors thought Rudy might renovate, update, maybe even live there, or maybe even rent it out, right? But he never did. He never even moved in. Then the neighbors complained that the house was being used as a hangout place with homeless people sleeping in the backyard, drug dealers, um, and sex workers coming in. There were also reports, of course, of the house being haunted. Um, ghost hunters have visited the house, and there are a few of the things. They, they've claimed that there's orbs. Early morning hours, you can hear a woman screaming and saying no and a man moaning, and all, obviously faces looking at you from the windows, right? Um... You know, again, I'm I'm not really into the whole ghost thing. I am, and right. I believe every second of all of this. Right. And I'm like, yeah, probably not. But, you know. Until something jumps up and scares her, and then she's, oh. Hey, someday, I, maybe I'll be proved wrong, but I have not yet. So, um, so like I said, Stacy, who did the podcast I listened to, got to meet Rudy when he was 83 years old. Um, she asked about the years that his parents owned the home and he told her that they actually did live there for 30 years. People thought the house was vacant, but Rudy said, no, we lived there. They lived there for 30 years. What? Yeah. But again, the neighbors all say it wasn't occupied. And even the mail carrier, even though she'd only been on the route for like nine years, but agreed that it hadn't been occupied. So why would Rudy say that? That's the thing. We don't really know. Um, because unfortunately he passed away um, before Stacy could keep asking him more questions. So when Rudy passed, like I said, Rudy passed away, um, there was 
uh, cousin, I believe it was a cousin. I'm not exactly, I didn't write it down, but this woman, Rosie, got in contact with Stacy to even invite her to his memorial service. Something about Rudy's that he was a very generous and kind man. Um, we don't really know for sure, though, too, if Emily, Amelia, um, and her, and Julian and Rudy ever did live in the house, but at some point someone was living there because you can look at the utility bills and see that there were things being used. So at some point, someone did live there at least for a few months to a couple of years. So it, it again, we'll never really know exactly for sure. Rudy passed away. He didn't have any kids. His mom and dad are passed. So it, it just kind of just is died with him. Yep. So they didn't understand though. Like why, why didn't Rudy just sell this house? Like, it was worth a lot of money, right? He didn't want to sell it because his parents had basically bought it for him to set him up for his future. That's a dick move on their part. <laughs> if my mom and dad bought me a haunted house where a murder happened. They got it for an amazing price. Don't care. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but um, but he, he was a simple man. He didn't want to live in this big mansion. That wasn't his style. So he stayed in their other family home. And this house just was kind of there. He would go and do repairs. He would go, you know, do what he had to do there. But he was also a bit of a hoarder. So, ah. yes. Yeah, so this house really was used as kind of a storage site as well. As, like a lot of people, the urban explorers would say that it just were piles and piles of things there. And, yeah. So, and Rudy had also said that none of the Pearlson's um, belongings were still there. But... From the urban explorers that had entered into the house, there were still things there. There's this one very famously known light plate in Judy's room that had her name on it with painted flowers. That was obviously Judy's nameplate. Nameplate, like it was in all the photos, like everything. It was still there until the last time this house was just on the market, and then it was stolen and taken. Oh dear. And if you want to know more about that, um, that podcast I listened to has a whole episode about that, actually, which is interesting. interesting. Yep. So um, now what if I told you that the deaths of Lillian and Harold were not the first deaths, death, deaths that happened in this house? I'd say prove it. Got it for you. So a 20-year-old named Donald Beaton was also found dead in this home. But due to L.A. County Assessor Records, 2457 Glendower Place is listed as the location of death. If you check the parcel maps, 2457 Glendower Place was just a misprint because this is 2475 Glendower Place. So that was on his death certificate. So he was died here. He wasn't murdered or anything. Sorry. Wait a second. He He was 20 years old. Yeah. What did he die from? tell you i'll get there oh my goodness but first we're gonna go back in time a little bit more we're gonna go back so back when the house was built in 1925 it was built by harry wiener (laughs) you knew that i was gonna do that did you (laughs) she looked right at me that's actually not the name of the man who built the house oh but that's what a lot of people say if you look online it it they're looking at handwritten records, and it's actually Harry Warner. But oh. a lot of things have it listed as Harry Wiener. So that's just fun. 
<laughs> so that's um, just fun. He designed many Spanish revival houses in that area. Fun fact, he also designed the first Carl, Carl's Jr. restaurant in 1945. Is he the reason that there's a cute little star guy? Absolutely. I'm going to say yes. Okay. Upon further research, you'll see that 2475 Glendower Place sits on two parcels of land, lot 17 and 19, which combined is about 0.6 acres, which doesn't sound like a lot of land to us, but in L.A., that's a good little chunk of land, actually. Um, looking for information of who has all owned this house in the podcast, Stacy had to go down into the underground tunnels of LA where really old records are kept. Yeah, I knew about those. Yeah, isn't that yeah. so? Yeah, literally, there's Didn't underground. Did we just get tunnels. done talking about something like that? I told you about a yeah. town, about Milwaukee, about yep. how there's like a whole town underneath yes. Milwaukee. Yeah, and that's the same with LA. So back in the day, it was hard for get for public transportation to get to one place to another. So sometimes it was easier for people just to walk underneath yeah. the streets um, because they didn't have the whole traffic pattern. You know, it wasn't all set up like how it is now. I mean, LA traffic, I think, is still awful. Um, but also because of all the hills and everything, it was a direct path just to walk straight underneath all of the city. So, okay. so I know that you have a lot to get through, but I have to say this. Yeah. You know what would make me super nervous about walking underneath all those tunnels? Huh. Sinkholes. What if you're just yeah. walking along and all of a sudden a sinkhole happens and a car just crashes into the ground and... I mean... Just done. It's something to think about always. That's... Okay. Constantly. Sorry. Keep continuing. No, I mean... <laughs> or what if there's an earthquake? Oh, shit. Yeah. Nope. I don't like it. We should just stay Tsunami. where we are. Nope. I'm going to stay where we are. Okay. Away from all that. Yep. Um... But yeah, so back to these underground tunnels, which I'm sure aren't creepy at all, right? There is a room that has one clerk that helps you pull your records. So um, assessor records are the county's way of keeping track of the properties. The owner information was only available, though, in these massive books in this underground tunnel. So yeah, a little creepy, right? And these books were huge because they would write out everything like horizontally like in long like lines and stuff <laughs> if you could see my hands they're saying, going like, real long up here. the whole couch right um now. yeah so the first listed owner of the house was william mead one of the developers of los Feliz. he owned every parcel of land in the 1920s around there so he basically bought up all that area right and developed it the next name is harry f shoemaker he had a wife, Florence, and they both died in 1928, three years after building this house. So they were the original people who built this house. Huh. They also owned a car, which not many people did back in the 1920s. And they built a three-car garage, which was very unusual for the time. Um, so another fact, they died inside their home. Well, and at the same time? In both no. Oh, okay. No. At the time of his death, Harry's estate was worth over $200,000, which translates to $1.3 million in today's money. Um, but first, Florence died July 1st, 1928, and her place of death was in her home. Her cause was a bacterial infection of the heart and kidney failure. Aww. She was just 41 when she passed. Oh, God. I know. How sad is that? And we also know it came on quick. A doctor was called to her home June 27th, so four days later, she died. Harry then died 27 days later. And he was young, too? Yep. He was 40 years old. What the heck? 
On his death certificate, it's listed that he died in his home as well, and he died of pneumonia. Showed that he was attended to by a doctor on July 5th until the day of his <gasps> death on on July 28th. You know what this sounds like? It sounds like the Brittany Murphy thing. Kind of weird. Yeah. She died oh, of be organ failure. <gasps> yep. And we then shortly one. after he died yeah. of pneumonia. Yeah, that guy though. I that's, that guy's a Yeah, I know, but like that's the exact same situation. Yeah. Isn't that and, that's very oh, creepy? And Holly, Hollywood and people. It's LA. Was it LA? Yeah. We'll have to figure that out, but that's very creepy uh-huh. because as soon as you said that, I'm like, I've heard this before. Yeah. I just watched the E! True Hollywood story on, on them, and it was... Oh, that'll be a good I watched it we when I was in the, in the in the bathtub. Aw! I was at cute. the candles going. It was great. Just a little bathtub murder. <laughs> so it seems as though he might have already been sick with pneumonia when his wife was sick and passed, too. Um, also shown on the records, they had an adopted daughter named Hazel, who was 13 when... Her parents, you know, when they died. So wait a second. So she gets adopted. Mm-hmm. And then her parents die and she's got to get adopted again? Nah, well, oh. Hazel was actually Florence's niece. All her right. parents were William and Jessie Delavan, Florence's sister. Jessie died in 1922. So Florence's sister died in 1922. Oh. Hazel then... Um, so she, they adopted her. Okay? Yeah, because yeah, she. But her in. biological dad was still around, so that's a little weird. Well, maybe he was a pile of shit. He probably was. Um, Hazel then went back to living with her biological father, though, when Florence and Harry passed. That's too bad. She had a sweet digs going. And... Yeah. Mm. So Hazel, even though she was legally adopted, she was denied her share of Florence and. Harry's estate because she had gotten married at age 17 without permission oh. in 1932 and became pregnant. See, I don't do those things. Right. The estate demanded that she get her illicit marriage annulled. So November of 1932, her annulment was granted, and then that same month, her daughter passed at the age of three months. Oh, jeez Louise. Yeah. I said, poor Hazel. So she lost her adopted, you know, she'd she lost, lost her, her mom. mom. Her aunt and uncle, and now her baby, and she had to get her marriage annulled. Jeez, what a what a way to live a life. Just and then after yeah. all that, that's when she moved back to Seattle to live with her biological father. So it's strange. Um, it's a strange parallel of this curse to that Los Feliz rancho ranchero. Like I said, a young woman was cut out of her uncle's will. Yeah, Hazel. And then um, the land had many terrible fates afterwards. So Hazel was cut out. Yeah. Just, you know, kind of weird things, right? Yeah. Um, So the house sat vacant with all of their owner's belongings for years. Um, Then, but during this time, Harry's brother Orlando moved in with his wife and son to kind of be the caretaker for the home. So this house... Wasn't owned by anyone yet, but he was there living in it, taking care of it. Also called a squatter. Yes. But they wanted him to. You should, there's a whole thing. Like, he was supposed to do this. This was his calling, apparently. Oh, okay. um, Except that the wife didn't want to live there because of that steep climb and the number of stairs as well, the garage being way down at the bottom of the hill. Um, and also, the house apparently made their son sick. And after nine months of living there, in May of 1929, they moved out. Oh. So this house. Nothing but trouble. People are getting sick and dying. A son, Their son got sick. It's probably um, built on a 
burial ground. I mean, probably. During their time there, the house was also broken into and items were stolen. Yep. Um, that happened a lot with this house. This house has had a lot of break-ins, a lot of things stolen. Um, Orlando said he tried to list the house with 15 different real estate firms and there were no offers ever. The house needed many repairs when Orlando was caretaking the home, which was a burden to Orlando. There were also, um, uh, wait, sorry. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. There were also three listings in the LA Times, May 2nd, May 4th, and May 15th of 1928. So these all happened about two months before Harry and Florence died. So why were they trying to sell their house? We don't know. So they were trying to sell their house before they even died in their home. Hmm. Um, in 1929, Orlando was able to get it rented out to a handful of different renters, though. German silent filmmaker Fred Zelnick is often mistaken as an owner, but actually he just rented the home. It was rented for $250 a month, which in today's money is $3,768. Pretty good for a 5,000 square foot mansion, I think, in Hollywood, right? Fred and his wife, Leah, signed a lease to rent from November 1929 to to 1930, but they actually stayed until August. So they broke their lease. And also in the lease, it said that it would come furnished. So remember, you're getting this house and it's all furnished, too. Um, they lived in the house when the census was going around and being taken in 1930, which is why it might be confused that they lived in the home as well, because they were counted as being uh, in the home. Yep. But in 1930, they went back to Germany to work on the talkie films because they were just starting to become popular in 1930. Um, so in August 1930, a new lease was drawn up for Wilfred Beaton and Sarah Lewis. That's right. Their son was Donald, that 20-year-old who died in the house. Oh, my goodness. Wilfred Bean also worked in the entertainment industry as a professional film critic, and he was very opposed to these talky films. Oh. His son, Donald, was also a film critic. Donald's case of death was um, sproyal turcosis, a fungal infection that he had gotten from a tennis injury and basically a blister that he got, and it got into his body and it caused oh the disease. Oh, my God. And he had, was living with this and suffering with it for three years. See, this is why it's dangerous to play dangerous. sports. Anything is dangerous. Careful. Anything can be dangerous. The doctor was called May 1st, and by May 3rd, he had passed. Yikes. Um, their lease ended in July of 1931. So the next tenants were George Arliss and his wife Florence. So another Florence. Um, and they signed the agreement to live there from December 1st, 1931 to May 31st, 1932. Arliss had just won an Academy Award, actually, in 1930, and he was the first British actor to win it one. Wow. So after their lease ended, they went back to England. Six months later, when the estate of the Schumachers was finally being closed out and assets needed to be liquid- liquidated, the house was advertised, but this time they used the name of this famed actor who was just there to kind of entice buyers into purchasing the home. Um, Finally, two years after managing the estate, Orlando was able to sell the house. John Stafford Jr. and wife Beverly and son Jack were the next to own it. Once they owned the house, they moved the garage to the top of the hill instead of down at the bottom, which was a big improvement to the property. Um, And they loved to host people. They had big events. They were... I'm going to say they were the best family that lived there. Like, good job, you guys. She was. They were very wealthy, very charitable. Um, and the John and Beverly Foundation still makes charitable donations to this day, actually. Cool. 
1954 to 1960, the home was owned by Whittier College, actually. So they gave their house to Whittier College when they died, which is kind of interesting. Oh. Um, yeah. So they lived in that house, no problems, huh? And Well, actually, they didn't give it to him when they died. They gave it to him when they wanted to move out of the house and move to an apartment because it was just they yeah. didn't need that house anymore. So, yeah. Yep, they lived in that house, no problem. Interesting. Yep. Maybe from the Goodwill, from their charity. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe because they moved the garage. Yeah, maybe that too. And then finally, in 1956, Harold and Lillian bought it from the college for $30,000, which was quite a bargain. And that is where our story began. So that is like a big um, rundown of all of this. Did I know? I read what I wanted to read there. Okay, so... Um, so now we're going to fast forward a bit. So in March of 2016, the mansion was emptied of its 50-year-old furniture and put back on the market for $2.75 million. Sounds about right. Yep. Remember, Harold and Lillian got it for $30,000 in 1956. It's gone up in value. Gone up in value a bit. <laughs> um, the listing agent was Nancy Stan- Stanborn, a realtor with Berkshire Hathaway. Ugh. Yeah. Oh. Nancy seems okay. I listened to her. Okay, so, so Nancy seems nice. Nancy seems okay. Just questionable. In, in an interview with Nancy, she talked about how she was shocked that how many people knew about this house and how much interest there was from media outlets from all around the world. So she obviously didn't have any open houses. They did a broker's caravan instead. Um, and when she, this was going on, she compared it to a circus. They didn't have any food, any drinks. They didn't need anything to get people to the property. 300 realtors showed up with their clients. Sounds like one of my open houses. Yeah, during COVID, right? Oh, my, it was. Yeah. Um, So, wow, I said, wow. (laughs) (laughs) The house was cleared out, so it wasn't sold with any personal property anymore either. Um, There's no real record of where these items went, though. Um, Yeah, so... We we don't really know where all of these items ended up going. Nancy said the agents were going wild. Can you imagine sharing legends about what they had heard? Like, can you imagine that chat? Oh, my gosh. Like, oh, my gosh. That's my dream. Yep. <laughs> the workmen were still even there working on the house because they had to board up the windows because so many people were trying to get into the house and everything. Wow. Um, while they were there, a real estate agent came running up from the basement with a ball peen hammer. She's like, I found it. I found the murder weapon. Good yeah. grief. Shocker. It wasn't. That wasn't no. it. There were workers there working. What a lunatic. Yeah. So um, the actual murder weapon was taken from the house back when the murder occurred, obviously. obviously. Um, Nancy also says this house is sort of the perfect haunted house. She says it seems to have eyes, which are the creepy windows on the front of the house, and that strange staircase going up through the window. So... Mm. You can kind of imagine it. I'll post photos later, too. I'm going to bring up some of these photos that I've been talking about, like these certain things. So um, houses on the market, buyers were vetted, potential buyers had to schedule with Nancy. The actual sale would happen in a court at probate auction, though. The hearing was a matter of public record, so the public could attend, but not that many people actually did, which I thought was interesting. When it came to the bidding, there were only two parties going back and forth. It was a younger two guys, which I'm guessing they were going to flip it, right? Mm-hmm. And then a couple. The couple were the ones that ended up getting it for $2.3 million. Brandon Pollock, a tech investor, and Lisa um, Bloom, 
which that name might sound familiar to you. Lisa Bloom? Lisa Bloom. She's nope. a trial attorney who runs her own firm and had her own show actually oh, on yep. TV for yep. eight years. Mm-hmm. I remember this now. Yep. yep. She represented Misha Barton, Kathy Griffin. Yep. And she was also the daughter of Gloria Allred. She there also was involved in representing Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein Ooh. which is the opposite of what she had been doing earlier in her career. So she's a very uh, versatile, interesting person, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to read more about that, she represented. Yeah, there's Harvey somewhere, and I don't know where, but I watched an episode <clears throat> about this house, either on Netflix or Hulu. And they talk about that chick. And I was like, oh, yep. I know who that is. Mostly just because of who her mom is. Right. Was. Yep. So. Rest in peace. Yep. Exactly. So Lisa and Brandon actually agreed for some interviews with um, Stacy, And they agreed to let the crew come into the house and go around the entire house, too. So that was pretty cool. Um. So why did they want to live there? Why did they want this house? They really didn't care about the history of it so much. They just had friends in the area. It was next to, next to Griffin Park, close to Silver Lake, center of the vegan area of L.A., which is what they said. The vegan area? The vegan mecca of L.A. Oh, criminy. Yeah. And it felt central to them. Um, they knew the story. Like I said, it made no difference to them in what happened in 1959. Lisa said the house is innocent. The house did not murder anyone. The house is a structure. Has she looked at the history? There's a lot going on with this house. <laughs> she sounds like you, though. Yeah, I know. A little bit. <laughs> They'd always planned to move in and live in the house. Um, they wanted to get rid of any ghost or bad energy to appease mm. any of their guests, though. So they did have, like... All of that kind of stuff come in, you know, to try to... The sage burning. All of and, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. So they did do that. Um, but one of the first things they did when they bought the house was put up a fence to keep out trespassers, and a big gate was installed, but that didn't even work, so they ended up having to put barbed wire at the top of the Jesus. fence. Yep. Which, I mean, it's just like, I get it, but like, that's just crazy to think that that's what you have to do to your own house, right? Um... So they had a lot of plans to renovate. They were going to change the roof line to add another like 600 and some square feet because it was an A-line and they were going to make it flatter and then put like a rooftop patio up there too because this house has like the best views ever. Um, They were going to add a garage, another garage closer and add in a basement basically. But ultimately the city said that since so much was being renovated over 50%, the entire house would have to be brought up to code, which would require the slope to change, which meant that they would have to tear down the house if they wanted to do these renovations. Oh, jeez. Yep. So they decided not to go ahead with the plans, and they didn't do the renovations. Um, yeah. So, like I said, Stacy and her film crew got the opportunity to film inside before any renovations had started because they did, you know, when Lisa and Brendan got in there. They gutted it, basically. Right. So, I remember seeing that yep. in this, whatever this was that I yep. watched. So they gutted it down. So and that's it, where they had left on things. Yep. And that's where they left it, too. Okay. So um, you can go view their footage on the website, which is really cool. So you can actually go and see what this house looked like before it got gutted. So um, they haven't done anything with it since it was gutted? No. That's what I thought. Okay. Nope. Um, like I said. 
and then here I say, seriously, listen to this podcast if you find this story interesting. It's I will. Great. Thank you. She describes, I wasn't going to put it all in there, but she, they describe walking through the whole house, what they see, like the different rooms. It's it's very interesting. So um, like she said, in one of the bedrooms, there were 1950s kid stickers on one of the doors, which obviously were, you know, the, the younger two kids' room with yeah. those stickers that they put on. So, I mean... Even though they hadn't lived there for years, there were still tokens basically around. And like I said, that light switch in Judy's room. Um, so, yeah. Then. And then. And then. And then um, so, yeah, this all happened, right? Yep. Now we're going to talk about um, the three children. So the three survivors there's not a whole lot known. They wanted to be distant from this. Um, the younger ones went to live with family on the East Coast, and Judy is reported to have changed her name so she wouldn't be associated with what had happened. In this podcast, Stacy did track Judy down, but she didn't want to be interviewed for her podcast and actually sent a cease and desist letter. So, wow, she really wants nothing to do yes. with it. So they're being left alone. Um, yeah. So July 11th, 2022, the house went back on the market. Jeez. Yep. For gutted? F- gutted for $5.5 million. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. They bought it for $2.3 million, gutted it, and relisted it for $5.5. You got that correct, ma'am. How does that work? Yep. Um, it doesn't. There's no way it's sold. Right. Okay, good. Right. I mean, the photos online were computer generated composites of how they envisioned the remodel okay. would look. So, if you look online, you can still go find these photos online, too. Let me just say this this goes to show you that attorneys are not realtors. This is what happens when an attorney tries to sell their home. Um, I'll list it for $3 million more than I bought it for, even though I gutted it and well, didn't do anything else with Lisa it. Lisa sounds like a real peach, anyways. So, yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's still alive. It's fine. Don't we worry don't care. About we don't care. We don't she's care. She's doing her thing. We're doing our yeah. thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, here's the listing description that they had. An incredibly rare development opportunity in Prime Los Feliz. Perched on a hilltop with sweeping views sits this 1920s Spanish revival home on over half an acre. This is a very special opportunity for a developer or owner user looking to develop their dream home. Dream home. Property will be delivered with a exquisite plans designed by world-renowned architect Richard Laundry that have been submitted to the city. The plans include 9,043 square feet of living space. So remember, they were going to be mm-hmm. adding on a whole basement in the attic, um, which includes separate guest quarters and a gym. There are also multiple patios, breezeways, and two garages that bring the total square footage to 10,939. This frame, this famed property is ready for its new owner to bring it life, bring it to life. Located in, in, I'm, apparently I'm fading here. It's almost Located in a gorgeous historical neighborhood nearby Frank Lloyd Wright's famous Ennis home. This is not one to be missed. Okay, so here's my issue. Yeah. They want, <laughs> they make it sound like they're going to provide these great plans, but they're not doing 
any of the work. Like, and they have to tear down the house. And you have to tear down the whole to house do it. to do it. But here's our plans and give us $5 million. Like, yep. Really, lady? Yep. Um, oh. So currently is listed as no longer available from what I can find, but it was not showed that it was sold um, or what it was taken. I, I, you know. It's probably an expensive storage unit again because she is, I don't know why she's not even trying to sell it for just a little bit more than what she paid for it. Like, Five million? Yeah. Yep. Who's I mean, her really, realtor? And too, like, they took away the character of the home inside, right. which right. is sad. Um, Jeez. Like I said, from what I could find, but if there's any agents in California that want to, like, let me know if they know. I mean, I, I'm sure, like, something like this, like, you know, people talk, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let me know. Um, and in 2022, a show named Buying Beverly Hills debuted on Netflix. And episode six was all about, you guessed it, the Los Feliz Mansion. Is that where I saw this? I know. That's what I, I was wondering. It's got to be. During the show, listing agent John Graman of the agency visits the property at and shows us with another agent. There are, they're there meeting that architect, which made up all the plans, um, in, who that um, Richard Laundry actually renovated the Sharon Tate house. Ooh. And his team are there to discuss their plans to remodel the house. The proposed square footage of the five-bedroom, seven-bathroom house is 9,043 square feet. Listing price, $5.5 million. Um, they had said it was going to take a lot to take this house out of the shadows of its past, like <laughs> all that murder and death of it. But, you know, <clears throat> but it would be without a doubt going to be one of the most spectacular homes, not just in the Los Feliz, but on the east side of L.A., Gosh. So even if they would just put in some walls and just put the house back together, they'd make more money. I don't understand. Yeah. There's got to be more to it than that. She's probably being haunted and she wants nothing to do with it. She said she didn't believe in all yeah, of that. Yeah, well, I bet you she's being haunted and that's why she won't lay a finger on that place. Yeah. Yeah, it's something. But basically, that long. That, that was, was a long, that, that was a long one, Mal. That was a long one. Like I said, there was a was lot good. to this. There's a lot yeah. that I didn't even really even touch There's on. There's a too. lot of death in one house. There's a lot of death, a lot of misfortune in that area. Like I said, everyone knows about the, you know, murder-suicide, but there was so much more to this house. I couldn't just talk about that. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? No, I'm glad you did. Especially didn't. since we could talk about, like, the history yeah. of the house because, you know, homes have histories, and this one definitely has well, a history. Well, it's kind of exciting because we can try to keep an eye on it. I know. I'm really, yeah, because I, what's happening with it? I want to keep watching. And you know, we could make an offer. Let's just, $5. You know what? What if all of our listeners you guys, helped let's, us let's put our money together? Go fund and, me. Ooh, and it can be our new podcasting room. Yep. The let's do it. 5,000 square foot house. Oh, my god. With gosh. no walls. I bet you we could find one room in there to make all kinds of foam put all kinds of foam oh, up yeah and that would be good but no it's so there there is a lot um yeah to this so That's good 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 choice there, there was harold and lillian but there were so many more characters in this play yeah no it was really good i mean i'm i'm exhausted but i'm still here that shows yep. yeah that i was very intrigued yeah so she didn't fall work. asleep while i was reading it was close though i mean i am extremely tired it it is we have going on one AM now. We have responsibilities tomorrow, so And we still have to record Robins. I'm just kidding. I think we're not going to do that tonight. <laughs> I 
will fall asleep in the middle of my story. No, but yeah. So like yeah. I said, we'll keep we'll keep an eye on this. If we see any updates, we'll post about it. Maybe just like talk about it in one of the upcoming episodes. Um, yeah. Yeah. But other than that. You know the, the drill. Yeah. Reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, concerns about any of our cases or if you have a case suggestion. Yes. Uh, you can find us on our Facebook page, Home is Where the Murder is, Instagram, or our Gmail account is Home is Where the Murder is, not Murder is Where the Home is, which is apparently what I said in the last podcast. So. Oh, no. Yeah. I heard it and I was like, shit. What, what kind of emails do you think that just got? I don't know. So just, you know, if I say something that doesn't make any sense, just go with it. Yeah. It's okay. So. But yeah, please like, follow, share. Tell your friends if you like us. If you don't like us, just don't don't tell say anyone. anything. Don't Thanks. tell us either. Okay, just keep that shit to yourself. Yeah, I want that. <laughs> I don't need that kind of energy in my life. So, all right. Well, good yeah. night, world. Good night. Good good luck and stay blessed. Less stressed. <laughs>